0: The sermon you are about to hear was recorded at Grace Baptist Church, Cape Coral, Florida. For additional sermons and more information, visit our website at truegraceofgod.org. In the 16th century, there was a famous debate that took place between the Protestant reformer Martin Luther and the humanist Roman Catholic apologist, Desiderius Erasmus, And in the midst of this debate, Luther wrote to Erasmus, your thoughts of God are all too human. In their debate over the sinfulness of mankind and the sovereignty of God, what Erasmus began to reveal in his own thoughts were that God surely must be like we are in many respects. That is, that he probably likes what we like. He probably responds to things the way we respond. And so using that approach, Erasmus began to make all of these statements about what God is like. Unfortunately, those thoughts about God did not die with Erasmus in the 16th century. They're still with us today. Yet the scripture repeatedly reminds us that God's thoughts are not our thoughts. And God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts and ways are above us. And when we begin to think that God is altogether like we are, we can be sure that we are misunderstanding the God who is. When we consider the way that we think, the way that we act, the way that we respond, and then reason, well, God must think that way, God must respond that way, surely God would agree with us on these things, then our thoughts of God are becoming all too human. What we must do, brothers and sisters, is let God speak for himself. We need to come to his word where he has revealed his mind to us, he revealed his thoughts to us, and submit our thinking to what he himself says in scriptures. When we do that, as we heed that, what we'll begin to understand is the responsibility to orient every aspect of our lives around the truth of who God really is. Over the last few months, we have been studying through the Old Testament book of Judges. And I've entitled the study of the whole book, Half-Hearted Devotion to a Wholehearted God. One of the main lessons in the book of Judges is how quickly people who profess to know God can drift away from Him as they take up patterns of thought and ways of life that are their pagan neighbor's thoughts and ways. Judges highlights this by showing how often the people of God in the Old Testament, after their conquest of the land of promise, settlement into the land of Canaan, become increasingly Canaanized, increasingly like the people who don't know God that they live around. Their devotion to God degenerates further and further until finally it's nothing more than just kind of a half-hearted tipping of the hat to the God who had done great works for them in saving them. But along with the degeneration of spirituality among the Israelites, The book of Judges also teaches us the unchanging character of the God who saves His people. He remains almighty. He remains wise. He remains good despite the decreasing loyalty of His people. Today in our study, we're going to see this contrast between the faithfulness of God and the unfaithfulness of His people set before us very starkly. We'll see it starkly revealed as we consider the life and work of a man named Abimelech. Abimelech was the son of Gideon, who was the last judge we looked at in this book of Judges. While people fall into new depths of spiritual rejection of God, God always remains unwaveringly completely faithful. So open a copy of God's Word to Judges chapter 9. That's where we left off last week. It's found on page 208. If you're using one of the Bibles provided for you. And I want to read all of the verses of chapter 9 and the first five verses of chapter 10 because they tag on to the postscript of Abimelech's life and reign. So hear the Word of God from Judges chapter 9 beginning in verse 1. Now Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam, now that is a name for Gideon, that was his Canaanite name, the son of Jeroboam, went to Shechem, to his mother's relatives, and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jeroboam rule over you, or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. So And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem. And their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Baal-barith, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Ophrah, and killed his brothers, the sons of Jeroboam, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubael, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar of Shechem. When it was told to Jotham, he went and stood on on top of Mount Gerizim and cried aloud and said to them, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are honored and go hold sway over the trees? And the trees said to the fig tree, You come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go hold sway over the trees? And the trees said to the vine, You come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? Then all of the trees said to the bramble, You come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in good faith you are anointed me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Now therefore, if you acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jerubbiel, And his house and have done to him as his deeds deserve. For my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian. And you have risen up against my father's house this day and have killed his son, 70 men on one stone. And have made Abimelech, the son of his female servant, king over the leaders of Shechem. Because he's your relative. If you then have acted in good faith and integrity with Jerubael and with his house today. Then rejoice in Abimelech. And let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Millo, And let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and Beth, from Beth Miloh and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled and went to Beer, and lived there because of Abimelech, his brother. Abimelech ruled over Israel three years. And God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jerubael might come and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem, who strengthened his hand to kill his brothers. And the leaders of Shechem put men in ambush against him on the mountaintops, and they robbed all who passed by them along that way, and it was told to Abimelech. And Gaal the son of Ebed, moved into Shechem with his relatives, and the leaders of Shechem put confidence in him. And they went out into the field and gathered the grapes from their vineyards and trod them and held a festival. And they went into the house of their god and ate and drank and reviled Abimelech. And Gaal the son of Ebed, said, "'Who is Abimelech, and who are we of Shechem that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jerubaiel, and is not Zebul his officer?' serve the men of Hamar the father of Shechem but why should we serve him would that this people were under my hand then I would remove Abimelech I would say to Abimelech increase your army and come out when Zebel, the ruler of the city heard the words of Gaal, the son of Ebed his anger was kindled and he sent messengers to Abimelech secretly saying behold Gael, the son of Ebed, and his relatives have come to Shechem, and they are stirring up the city against you. Now, therefore, go by night, you and the people who are with you, and set an ambush in the field. Then in the morning, as soon as the sun is up, rise early and rush upon the city. And when he and the people who are with him come out against you, you may do to them as your hand finds to do. So Abimelech and all the men who were with him rose by night and set an ambush against Shechem in four companies. And Gaal the son of Ebed, went out and stood in the entrance of the gate of the city. And Abimelech and the people who were with him rose from the ambush. And when Gaal saw the people, he said to Zebul, Look, people are coming down from the mountaintops. And Zebul said to him, You mistake the shadow of the mountains for men. And Gael spoke to him again and said, Look, people are coming down from the center of the land, and one company is coming from the direction of the diviner's oak. Then Zebul said to him, where is your mouth now, you who said, Who is Abimelech that we should serve him? Are not these people whom you despised? Go out now and fight with them. And Gael went at the head of the leaders of Shechem and fought with Abimelech. And Abimelech chased him, and he fled before them, and many fell wounded up to the entrance of the gate. And Abimelech lived at Aruma, and Zebel drove the out Gael and his relatives, so that they could not dwell at Shechem. On the following day the people went out into the field, and Abimelech was told he took his people and divided them into three companies, and set an ambush in the fields. And he looked, and he saw the people coming out of the city, so he rose against them and killed them. Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city, while the two companies rushed upon all who were in the field and killed them. And Abimelech fought against the city. All that day, he captured the city and killed the people who were in it, and he razed the city, and he sowed it with salt. When all the leaders of the Tower of Shechem heard of it, they entered the stronghold of the house of Elberith. Abimelech was told that all the leaders of the Tower of Shechem were gathered together And Abimelech went up to Mount Zalman, he and all the people who were with him. And Abimelech took an axe in his hand and he cut down a bundle of brushwood and he took it up and laid it on his shoulder. And he said to the men who were with him, what you've seen me do, hurry and do as I have done. So every one of the people cut down his bundle and following Abimelech, put it against the stronghold and they set the stronghold on fire over them so that all the people of the tower of Shechem also died about a 100,000 men and women. Then Abimelech went to Thebez and encamped against Thebez and captured it. But there was a strong tower within the city and all the men and women and all the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in. And they went up on the roof of the tower. And Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor-bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, A woman killed him. And his young man thrust him through, and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads, and upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubal. After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua, son of Dodo, a man of Issachar. And he lived at Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel 23 years. Then he, was die, then he died and was buried at Shamir. After him arose Jair, the, Gilead, the Gileadite, who judged Israel 22 years. And he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys. And they had 30 cities called Havath Jair to this day which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried It came on. God always remains faithful, even when we are unfaithful. Gideon has died. And as verses 33 and 34 of chapter 8 tell us, upon his death, the people forgot God. They went full bore back to the false gods of their neighbors because of their forgetting the true God. When Judges tells us, or when the Bible tells us, that people forget God, it's not saying that they forget the facts about God or that they forget God exists. What it is saying is that God doesn't matter to them anymore. God really doesn't land heavily upon them. He doesn't factor into the way that they think about their lives, the way they orient their day-to-day living. Abimelech was Gideon's son. He was born to a concubine from the city of Shechem. Now, Shechem was a Canaanite city situated in the valley between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, very important mountains in that land of promise for the people of Israel. Shechem became a city of great importance in the history of Israel. There are at least Four reasons that the city is important in what took place over the history of Israel. The first is that when God told Abraham to leave the land of his fathers and go to a land that he would give to him and his descendants, the first place that Abraham stopped was Shechem. And that's where God revealed himself to Abraham and said, Look at all this land as far as you can see. It is a land I promise to give you and to your seed. Secondly, early in the conquest of Canaan, when Joshua led the Israelites to capture the land of Canaan, one of the first things he did was to stop at Shechem as Moses had commanded him to do and renew a covenant commitment between the people of Israel and God. Joshua did this not only there at the beginning of the conquest, he did it again at the end of his life in Joshua 24 where it's recorded. And both of those covenant renewal ceremonies took place at Shechem. When the Israelites left Egypt, they did what Joseph made his children and grandchildren promise to do. They exhumed his bones from the grave there in Egypt. And they carried those bones with them through the wilderness till they came to the land of Canaan. And they planted Joseph's bones in Canaan and they did so at the land of Canaan. Of Shechem. So, though now the land of Shechem has been taken over by Israel, it still remains a headquarters, a center for Canaanite worship. It's a reminder of how the people of Israel did not do what God told them to do in completely dispelling the Canaanites. It was particularly a center for the God Baal. Barith, the bail of covenant. The contrast between faithfulness and unfaithfulness that I see in this chapter as a major theme comes to us from this allegory, this fable that Jotham tells from Mount Gerizim when he shouts down over the people who have anointed his half brother Abimelech king. Jotham mentions in verse 16 and in verse 19 this phrase of good faith and integrity. Good faith and integrity. Do you see it? He sets it up as a condition. If you've acted in good faith and integrity, then this. But if you've not, then let that happen. The two words that he uses literally mean truth and perfection. Truth And perfection used together, they carry this idea of complete loyalty and faithfulness. And Jotham tells this fable, this allegory, in order to highlight how the people of Shechem have failed to be people of truth and perfection, people of faithfulness, by giving themselves over to unfaithfulness to the Lord and His ways, forsaking the God of their fathers, the God of salvation. The only other place in the Bible where these two words are used together is in the covenant renewal ceremony that's recorded in Joshua 24. Before his death, Joshua gathers the people together again at Shechem, and he says this in Joshua 24, verse 14, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him, and as the ESV translates it, in sincerity and in faithfulness. Same two words. He goes on, put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Now these events in Judges 9 demonstrate just how far away from sincere devotion to the true God the Israelites have spiraled. We've already seen the downward trajectory in previous chapters, especially in the last three chapters when we look at what was recorded under the judgeship of Gideon. The nation is fragmented because the tribes are turning against each other. There's petty jealousies that are beginning to emerge. They've taken the worship practices of the Canaanites and they've incorporated it into their own practices when they began to worship an ephod that Gideon made out of gold, this vest that mimicked the vest that God prescribed to be worn by the high priest. Now in chapter 9, we see the utter Unfaithfulness of this people as it manifests itself in the blatant rejection of the Lord and His commandments. But what we also see that is not as obvious but is even far more important is the ongoing faithfulness of God all the way through His people's unfaithfulness. So this chapter is designed to teach us that God always remains faithful even when we are unfaithful. I want us to see this by, first of all, noting in the first 21 verses of the chapter how unfaithfulness arises when personal ambition goes unchecked. Abimelech was a man who was ambitious. He wanted to rule over Shechem and beyond. So he goes and he appeals to the leaders of Shechem, his hometown, his mother's hometown. He makes an argument as a favorite son, a son of the town. And he says, wouldn't it be better for me to rule you than the 70 sons of Gideon? The people think that's a good idea. So they take money, offerings that had been offered up to their pagan god, Baal Berith, and they give him 70 pieces of silver. And with them, he hires a group of thugs, and he goes and slaughters his half-brothers. Notice what these men are called that he hires. They are reckless and worthless men. Verse 5 says that together with Abimelech, they murdered the rest of Gideon's son except one on one stone. One stone. Think about what that must have been like not like they found those guys all together and went and just wiped them out. No, they went and captured them, probably had to bind them, and then one by one executed them in a bloody display of slaughter. Only Jotham, verse 5 says, the youngest son of Gideon escaped. Abimelech is installed as king at Shechem, this important town where God had first told Abraham, I'm giving you all this land, where the covenant was renewed at least twice under Joshua's leadership with the Israelites who proclaimed, you're our God, we will be your people. Jotham, seeing what is happening, hearing that his half-brothers being installed as king, goes up onto Mount Gerizim, which was known as the Mount of Blessing, because that's where blessings were announced during the first covenant renewal and he begins to tell a story it's the closest thing to a fable that we have in the bible and he tells a story in order to highlight the unfaithfulness of abimelech and the unfaithfulness of the shechemites in one sense his story is very comical he refers to a bramble he talks about the noble trees and that exist in the forest all the other trees saying hey come rule over us and the noble trees say we don't have time for this we're not going to leave what we're doing for this and so finally they say to the bramble hey would you come and rule over us what's a bramble it's a thorn brush it's ground cover it's clutter it's what farmers curse because it messes up their fields and is constantly having to be removed it's good for nothing it encumbers the ground It was notorious for catching fire and then spreading fire as it was carried along by winds. Brambles never grew high. They were just close to the ground. And so when the the bramble says, well, come, take refuge under my shade. I mean, it's a comical scene. Mighty trees, cedars would come find refuge in a bramble. Jotham's calling Abimelech a bramble man calling the people of Shechem foolish for following him. But not only is his story comical, it's actually prophetic. If Abimelech and the Shechemites have acted faithfully, then let peace and joy rule their relationship. But if not, which Jotham knows is the case, then let them destroy each other. Look at verse 20. If you haven't acted in good faith let fire come out from abimelech and devour the leaders of shechem and beth-millo and let fire come out from the leaders of shechem and beth-millo and devour abimelech you see abimelech's not concerned either with his father or his father's god he's concerned with his own ambitions and the shechemites don't care about the lord or the lord's commandments They just want to be left alone to serve their gods without any interference. Abimelech wants to be given opportunity to be king and to rule. And so they come together and it is a match made in hell. And we see the consequences of it with the devastation that is wreaked upon the land. Once those who have known the Lord and His commandments turn away from Him and pursue His agenda and pursue their own agendas, that pathway always leads to more and more moral degeneracy. Both the Shechemites and Abimelech had received clear revelation from Yahweh. The city had been witness to various ceremonies declaring God's faithfulness to His people and the people's pledge to be faithful to Him— Joshua even put a stone there and said, this stone will be a witness to the covenant that you have renewed on this day. Abimelech, as the son of Gideon, had a father who, with all of his flaws, all of his faults, was a man of faith, a man who knew God, who served God, who trusted God. And yet Abimelech and the Shechemites both reject the Lord and his ways in order to pursue their own agendas. What we see going on in Romans 9 is an example of what Paul says happens in Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, verse 18, listen to the way he describes what happens to societies and what God does in response. They did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up. Brothers and sisters, this is an apt summary of what is going on in our American culture right now, what has happened over the last 75 to 100 years that has become all the more apparent in recent weeks. Personal ambition has fueled rejection and clear revelation of God in Jesus Christ. But this is not just a description of what happens to societies and cultures and nations This is also an apt description, I believe, of some of you who are here this morning. God's plainly revealed Himself to you. The Bible says that even if you've never seen the Bible, creation screams out something of the character of God. But you are here this morning hearing God's Word. Some of you have heard God's Word for all of your lives. Many of you, multiple times, so that you are without excuse And you know God. Everyone here knows God. But Some of you suppress that knowledge in unrighteousness. You hold it down because you don't want God to be Lord over you. And so your hearts have become darkened and hardened and you're satisfied to go on that way you exchange the glory of the creator for the glory of the creature thinking yourself to be wise you've really become fools but God has you here today to see this example from the Old Testament to hear the way it applies to our lives right now why does God have you here today it's not to just let you go on in your foolishness he has you here today to call you again, to stop and consider what's going on in your life, to stop and think about your life before your creator. Don't go on in your foolish way of thinking. Don't go on suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Don't turn away from the revelation that God's given you in His Word, the opportunities that He's given you. Don't carry out your own personal ambitions to the destruction of your never-dying soul. God calls you to return to Him, to believe this truth, to be reconciled to Him, to come to honor Him as God by bowing before Him through the one place that He has revealed the path of reconciliation, and that is His Son, Jesus Christ. Come to him. Believe this. Call Jesus Lord and you will come to know God. Unfaithfulness arises when personal ambition goes unchecked. But a second thing we see in this chapter, <clears throat> excuse me, is that unfaithfulness degenerates into abject lawlessness. It's verses 22 through 49. The Shechemites turn on Abimelech. Gail, this newcomer to the city of Shechem, begins to plot a coup. It's interesting because his approach is very similar to the one Abimelech used. Man, if I were in charge, if I were in charge, life would be better. If I could just have my way to lead you, we'd deal with this Abimelech fellow. Zebel, the city ruler, who is in cahoots with Abimelech, becomes infuriated, informs Abimelech, and Abimelech turns on the Shechemites in verses 34 through 49. With Zebul's help, he wipes out the city. Wipes it out. Look at verse 45. Abimelech fought against the city all that day, captured the city, killed the people who were in it, raised the city, sowed it with salt, ceremonially declaring "Let nothing ever live here again in a final act of treachery he burns a thousand people alive in a tower can you imagine they're in a tower seeking refuge and he gets brambles and lights them on fire so that the tower becomes an oven and the people are cooked to death i mean how do we get to this point how do the israelites get to this point A little over 200 years before, Joshua has led them to renew their covenant commitment to God who's given them this land. He has admonished them and warned them, gathering them there at that very city of Shechem, and they pledged their loyalty to the Lord. Listen to the words of that covenant renewal ceremony from Joshua 24. He charged the people... Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers, the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the people, hearing this, This is how they responded, Joshua 24, 16. Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for He is our God. Verse 24, the Lord our God we will serve. His voice we will obey. Joshua 24 goes on. So after that Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem and Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God and he took a large stone and he set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. This is in Shechem. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore it shall be a witness against you lest you deal falsely. With your God. That was shortly after they had settled the land, conquering enemies, receiving the blessings God had given to them in this new country. And now, a couple of hundred years later, those words of warning and promise are empty, they're meaningless. What happened? What happened is the outworking of unfaithfulness to God. When you forsake the true and living God and His commandments, the end result is always inevitably chaos. You may not get completely to chaos in your lifetime, but the end of that pathway of unfaithfulness is chaos. There is no morality without God, He is the one who determines what is right and wrong. And when he is rejected, it is only a matter of time before moral degeneracy ensues in chaos. What we see in Judges 9 is the natural consequences of breaking faith with the true and living God. Neither the Shechemites nor Abimelech care about the Lord or His commandments. They become unfaithful to Him to pursue life on their own terms, and consequently, when difficulties arise, and when opportunities arise, they're not governed by principles of righteousness because they've broken faith with the God of righteousness. They're concerned with only what is expedient, what makes sense to them. So consequently, when they grow weary and suspicious of each other, they just simply turn against one another. They have no scruples to restrain them, they're not governed by what is right. They're governed by their own passions and desires. Brothers and sisters, this is the inevitable tendency that results from being unfaithful to the living God. That's why half-hearted devotion to the whole-hearted God is nothing less than wholehearted rejection of Him. You cannot have God with half-hearted devotion Jesus said it in Luke 6 46 why do you call me Lord Lord and do not do what I command it's a rhetorical question the point being you can't you can say the words but you can't have Jesus as Lord without submitting yourself to his revealed will it's a question we ought to put to ourselves regularly Why do I call you Lord, and yet when I see what your word says, and yet I see what I want, and they're different, I just go to what I want? Why do I call you Lord and refuse to be inconvenienced to pursue your will when it contradicts my will? Half-hearted devotion is wholehearted rejection. At that point, when you start picking and choosing which parts of God's commandments you're going to observe, which parts you're going to ignore, it's no longer Jesus who is Lord of your life, but you who are Lord of your life. This is why we're called to be faithful in our devotion to Christ. To be loyal to Him. Have you found in your life that you have turned away? And given in to a tendency to just live life on your own terms? Is that true of you? When you hear Jesus say those words, why do you call me Lord, Lord? And do not do what I say. Maybe you've drifted in your devotion to Jesus. Maybe over the months or years, you have slowly but surely started living life on your own terms. But here, Today, you're here. God's brought you here. And He's opening your eyes to see what you've done. Why? Why? To to just run you into the ground? No, to wake you up. To convict you and to call you to return. Return where you are now. Just admit to the Lord God, I have drifted. I've, I've faded. I've become less serious and devoted to you and to the ways of Christ. And I repent today and I turn back today and help me, oh God. And He will heal you. He will help you. Talk to brothers and sisters about it. Ask them to pray for you. And redevote yourself to Christ as Lord. Not only does unfaithfulness arise when personal ambition goes unchecked. And not only does it degenerate into lawlessness ultimately. The third thing our text teaches us is that unfaithfulness will not go unpunished. It will not go unpunished. We see this in verses 50 through 55. Abimelech attacked the neighboring city of Thebez. It must have been there, and they must have been in cahoots with Shechem, not far away from that city. He intended to burn the people of Thebez alive in their tower the way he had done at Shechem. But you see the text in verse 53. A certain woman, we don't even know her name, Can you imagine the conversation between her and her husband when they're running to the tower? I just need to get this millstone. Really? (laughs) A millstone? (laughs) You know, it weighed 10, 20, 30 pounds? I just want to carry this millstone up the stairs of the tower. And then she just throws it. Lands on the skull of Abimelech. And he is too embarrassed to have it said he died at the hands of a woman. So he tells his armor bearer to run him through. The armor bearer does this. What's going on? This is the final fulfillment of the prophecy of Jotham. Fire came out from Abimelech, destroyed the Shechemites, and now fire comes out from them to destroy him. Both people and king got what their sins deserves. Unfaithfulness to God always brings its own consequences. This is what Paul means when he writes back in Romans 1.18. Did you hear the way he said it? The wrath of God is is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. He's saying it is currently right now being revealed. God has wrath right now that is being manifested on unrighteousness and ungodliness. That's the case of what happened in our text. Neither the Shechemites nor Abimelech would necessarily have realized that their unfaithfulness was being judged in the events that unfolded. We know that's what's going on because of the prophecy of Jotham. Now today, we don't have any inspired prophets around us. We don't have anybody that can look at any one event and say, oh, this event is a direct judgment of God against this specific sin. But what we do know is God still does this. He still operates in this way. Unfaithfulness to him will not go unpunished. The scriptures say that the wages of sin is death. The soul that sins must surely die. God promises he will not let the guilty go unpunished. And expressions of present judgment, they're foretastes of the coming permanent judgment. There's shots across the bow. Read Luke 13 verses 1 through 7. See how Jesus interprets horrific events in history. He says unless you repent you will likewise perish. God is warning people with expressions of present judgment of the coming day of judgment when final judgment will be made and those who live and have lived Apart from him, an unrighteousness will be cast into a place of everlasting wrath. People don't believe that today. They scoff at it. They ridicule it. They don't want to think about it because if it's true, it's horrific. They don't want to think of the horror of being under everlasting condemnation with no hope of ever being relieved. But the Bible tells us that day is already on God's calendar coming he reveals it to us to call us to turn that we might receive mercy and grace on that day he's faithful he will not allow disobedience to him to go unpunished unfaithfulness arises when personal ambition goes unchecked it ultimately will degenerate into lawlessness and it will not go unpunished But the the fourth and final thing that our text shows us that I want to call to your attention is that God remains faithful even when His people are unfaithful. In this whole story, unfaithfulness has been prominent. That's what's been front and center. Abimelech and the Shechemites are in the spotlight. In fact, the Lord is not even mentioned in chapter 9, verse 1, through chapter 10, verse 5, by his covenant name. That's why you read those verses and you won't see the little English word LORD spelled in all caps. Because when it's spelled in all caps, that is a rendering of the Hebrew name for God, Yahweh, which is his covenant name, the name by which he revealed himself to his people. You don't find that anywhere in this text. God's only mentioned generically four or five times, incidentally. But though he's not obviously involved, He's definitely and intimately involved in the events that we read about. God remains faithful to punish sin. We see this in what he tells us, what the the book tells us about God's involvement. The events that unfolded in the death of Abimelech and the Shechemites can be rightly interpreted as the natural outworking of their own sin. But we're told by the author of this chapter that God is the one who is directly, if not obviously, involved. He turned Abimelech and the Shechemites against each other. Look at verse 23. God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech, that the violence done on the 70 sons of Jerubel might come and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. Why did they turn on each other? Well, it was a natural outworking of their sins. But God was ruling and overruling that because he set that up. He did this. And then verse 56, he did it in order to show his faithfulness in punishing sin. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon the curse of Jotham, and upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubal. He remains faithful. To keep his word in punishing sin. But God also remains faithful to save his people by grace. This is amazing. This is where the story of Tola and Jair come in in the first five verses of chapter 10. Those first five verses are Striking. They can almost be overlooked. They seem insignificant. But they're striking for two reasons. First, they come as a surprise. The usual pattern in Judges is the people turn away from God. They fall into sin and to idolatry. They suffer. They cry out to God. God raises up a judge who delivers them. And when the judge delivers them, they have peace. Till the judge dies, then the cycle begins again. But you see, Abimelech wasn't a righteous leader. He, he was an ambitious man who put himself forward to be king. And so we don't have that cycle after him. It was a wicked day in which he ruled. But what we do have are these two next judges mentioned. So the fact that they come without all of this other information is surprising. But the second reason it's surprising is because the mention of these two judges doesn't tell us all much at all about them. But it does tell us a lot about God. The fact that they even had a rule as judges. Tola and Jair are minor judges. And they testify to God's grace. Collectively, 45 years of peace through their judgeships. Look at verse 1. Tola arose to save Israel. Verse 2, to judge Israel. Think about this for a moment. From whom did Tola save the Israelites. From what did he save them? We don't read about the Midianites. We don't read about the Amalekites coming and oppressing them. What did he save them from? He saved them from themselves. He saved them from their wickedness and following wholeheartedly after their Canaanite neighbors and forgetting God, letting God just be light upon their lives. He came and rescued them from themselves. Israel had sunk so low, they aren't even seeking the Lord for help. There's no indication they have any conviction over their sin, yet God sends them a Savior. He had promised to save His people. He had promised to keep His people alive in order to bring about His ultimate purposes of salvation and sending His own Son into the world. So despite these people's unfaithfulness to him he remains faithful to himself and to his promise to save and god will always remain faithful to himself he cannot deny himself even when we are unfaithful he will fulfill his purposes through the savior that he sent into the world to save his people from their sins and he will do that regardless of what happens in the world regardless of what happens to an individual This is behind Paul's statement in Romans 5, 6. He says, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the godly. He didn't send his son to the world to save us because we're good, because we do things well, because he knows that if he just gives us a chance, we're going to change our lives. Because he's a God of grace who has promised to save his people, he sent his son into the world when we didn't deserve him, we weren't looking for him. And left to ourselves, we would have no desire for Him. Because He's a God of grace and faithfulness, His Son came to save. Brothers and sisters, the Lord will never forget to be gracious to us as His people. We can be sure that no matter what happens to us, God will remain faithful to Himself, to His promises, which means that He will remain faithful to us as we trust his promises, as we depend upon the one who secured those promises, Jesus Christ the Lord. Once again, in this part of the book of Judges, we find ourselves confronted with a tension. We've seen it throughout. We'll see it further in the book as well. Tension between the promise God has made to punish sin and the promise he has made to show grace. How could he do this? How's the tension resolved? How can God remain true to Himself in punishing sin and true to Himself in showing grace and saving sinners? The answer is Jesus Christ. Christ resolves the tension. God is preparing the way now, hundreds of years before sending His Son into the world to resolve. This tension. Christ is the one whom, as Romans 3 25 puts it, God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he'd passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. So Jesus Christ comes to vindicate God's faithfulness to prove that God is faithful in punishing sin and God is faithful in showing grace to his people. So how is my sin going to be dealt with before the righteous God who's promised the soul that sins must surely die? The wages of sin is death. How's my sin going to answer to that promise of God, that determination of God that every sin must be punished? Because Jesus Christ stood in my place and took my sin upon Himself and God punished my sin in Him. And how can I be the recipient of forgiveness and grace and salvation knowing that I'm a sinner? Because Jesus Christ stood in my place and did everything necessary to fulfill righteousness so that as my substitute, God looks at Him And gives me what he deserves. So God remains just and gracious toward all who have faith in Jesus. You and I, we can be unfaithful. God will never be unfaithful. He will always be faithful to himself because he cannot deny himself. And if you're in Christ, that's good news. Brothers and sisters, what that means is that every last one of your sins has been paid for and carried away by Jesus. God saves you righteously. God receives you righteously. If you're not trusting Christ, then I hope you'll be awakened by this reality. The God before whom you live, whose air you breathe, whose food you eat, whose health you enjoy is the God who remains faithful to Himself. And He will glorify Himself by causing every sin to be punished and by causing His grace and forgiveness and salvation to flow in and through His Son, the Lord Jesus Trust Jesus. Believe this good news. Come humbly before your creator today. And say, oh God, for Jesus' sake, save me. He will save you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your graciousness to your people right now. As you work all things together for our good and your glory. Thank you that when we fall and we see our unfaithfulness, we can be sure that you will never fall. You will never be unfaithful. You remain faithful because you cannot deny yourself. And may we look to the places that you have promised to be gracious and run and find ourselves hidden in Jesus Christ, who has secured salvation for all who trust in him. Give us that. Strengthen us in such faith. We pray in his name. Amen. Stand with me as we sing.